I'm excited to introduce our guest today. If you don't know him, I don't know how you're doing Bitcoin Twitter. I don't know how you're doing any of your podcasting. Most recently featured on Alex Jones' InfoWars, the author of the Uncommunist Manifesto. Uh, there are so many other things I can list here, but Mark Moss, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Thanks, Q. Uh, being back. Appreciate it. What's up, P? How's Good it going, man? with you in uh, Austin. Yeah. I'm still in Austin. I haven't left. I, I'm not back into my studio, unfortunately. Normally, I'd have my nice cameras and stuff, but but we're going to make do. Happy to be back with you guys. Thanks so no, much, man. I, have, I, don't, I don't know what that little inter interlude thing was before I came on, but uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I saw you laughing. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's uh, Bilal making his, his own interpretation of the Bitcoin Magazine Live show, and every time I hear it, it, it goes on longer than I think somehow. And every time I'm like, this is making me anxious. And then I just feel, cause it goes on long. And then I just feel the need to dance and I get all hyped. It's, it's solid. You kind of have no choice, but to dance. Like, cause you're just like sitting there staring at a man who's drumming for you, but it did, uh, it did kind of, it did kind of make me smile and feel a little optimistic and upbeat. So I'll give him that. Right. There you go. You know, I mean, we titled today, I mean, originally titled today, winter is coming. Mark, there's a whole lot going on in clown world. Uh, I'm curious and I want to let you maybe tell us what are the things that are really keeping, keeping you up at night is a little extreme, but like, what are you paying closer attention to than you would have historically speaking? Yeah. Can I so shoot. Yeah. I jump, I jump in and give you a little bit more props. Cause I, I, I don't want to assume that everyone who's watching knows who you are out of the gate. You are also the host of the first nationally syndicated radio show specifically on Bitcoin. You also host one of the fastest growing channels on YouTube. You talk about Bitcoin specifically and macro topics, and you also are the host of the Market Disruptors podcast. What else can you tell us about who you are for people who have been living under a rock? <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'm trying to be everywhere. So I kind of have the, the radio show, as you said, the podcast, I have the YouTube channel and each one of those are different types of content. So I'm creating content for each one of those. The YouTube channel is more like educational. So I take like a big topic, I unpack it and I have all what I call the receipts. So I have the charts, the graphs, the headlines, et cetera, to back everything up. The radio show is obviously just audio. So it's a little bit more kind of educational. And then the podcast takes the radio show, turns into a podcast as well as we do like long form content as well. So different types of content. I think when it, when it comes to content, I think of it kind of in like a hunter or farmer type of mentality. And so there's plenty of Bitcoin podcasts like what Bitcoin did, for example. And the way I see it is that's more of like a farmer where only if you're already a Bitcoiner, would you listen to a podcast called what Bitcoin did? I think of myself more as like a hunter where I'm going after the no coiners or people who don't understand what Bitcoin is or why it's important. So maybe at first glance, a lot of my content may not look like Bitcoin content because I don't put it into the headline of every single thing. I'm trying to hunt the people. So people often ask me all the time, like, oh, how do I orange pill this person? Or what should I say to my whatever friend? And so the, each of my videos might talk about the global food problem that we're having or the Fed's backs against the wall and you know inflation hasn't peaked yet. But each one of those draws back to, of course, Bitcoin fixes things, right? Fixes this, right? So fix the money, fix the world. So I, I take all these different problems that people might be seeing in their life, might be concerned about, might be feeling that pain. And then we just trace it all the way back to, well, 
Bitcoin fixes that kind of a thing. So that's kind of the way I approach as far as where else people might've seen me. I mean, I love to love to be having conversations with guys like you. Alex Fetsky and I just released this book, The Uncommonist Manifesto, which hit Amazon a couple of weeks ago. I think we're doing pretty good with that. I feel good about it. And then as Q alluded to just yesterday, while I'm here in Austin, Texas still, I was just on the Alex Jones show, which was a, a pretty big deal, a crossover to a new audience. And I love that audience because back to the hunter side of things, right? So Alex Jones has this audience that's concerned about all these different things, whether that be, you know, the politics side or the, you know, the, the globalist side or World Economic Forum side or all these things. And so then I'm able to kind of come in there, grab some of that attention where people see problems and then, hey, look, there's no way to solve this without Bitcoin, which he conceded to, which was pretty cool. That's fantastic. I, I, I have not heard you make that analogy before. I really like that. And I just want to take a little soundbite. You just said that you hunt people. That might be taken out of context, but I'm gonna just roll with it. So, well, I don't, I don't hunt people. It's more like I put the, I put the content out, and people come in. I think of it a better analogy. The way that I, I think about my content, and one of my friends who's a marketing coach, he kind of helped me with is, is like a lighthouse. So a lighthouse shines its light out. And then the boats that need it will come in off that light. So I put this content out like, hey, you notice how things are getting so expensive and the Fed keeps printing money? Yeah, that's because it's fiat money system. So that's a pain. And they say, yes, I identify with that. I see that problem. And then we kind of bring that boat in. Well, look, here's the solution to that problem. And so maybe that's a better analogy. I'm not really hunting people. I'm not going out and talking to individual people, like putting the message out, letting people come in. P, I but think your real takeaway from meant, there. I just meant like who it's going to, right? So it's it's more going to people who don't consider themselves Bitcoiners yet. A hundred percent. I was I was trying yes. to imagine you in like that John Leguizamo movie, you know, like with like the, the safari hat and everything. But no, all joking aside, you do an incredible job of bringing, as you said, people that are not typically or have not yet been exposed to Bitcoin into the fold through these kind of alternative channels. And yeah, it's it's quite remarkable. So I want to now go go back and re-ask my question that I wanted to start and kick this What's conversation keeping me off. up at night? <laughs> yes. Yes. Man, there are, there, are, there are a lot of things keeping me up at night. And as a matter of fact, I made a video recently and I said, this is what's keeping me up at night. And so there's, there's a lot of things and it's crazy how fast the world is changing, like right before our very eyes. And I think what's happening is, in my opinion, is, you know, we're seeing the end of a hundred year sovereign debt bubble, which we haven't really seen before, not in our lifetime. So history is super important for us because most of our lifetimes are pretty short in the period that we're actually paying attention. So we kind of have to look at this history. So we're witnessing that, but we're also witnessing a bigger cycle happening and really through technology. Technology is always the catalyst that changes things. And so just like in the 1500s, the Gutenberg printing press was a new technology that changed things. And it and it, what it did is it broke the state's monopoly on information or, or narrative control. And they tried to stop it. They labeled people heretics and they killed them, but they couldn't stop the change. And so today we have the internet that's also come out 20 or 30 years ago, depending on where you want to, you know, two, 19, 1990 really, WW went live. 2007, we had the iPhone, but it's really Lot, the, the government's lost control of the narrative, which I think has caused them to speed things up faster. Everyone's afraid of these like shooting wars, like another World War III. I think it's a war of information and money. And we're already seeing that, right? Economic warfare. And so there's a lot of things we can point to, but I'm going to tell you what, what's 
really keeping me up at night. And also I'll kind of breeze through that. But I think that's caused the governments to realize they're losing control of the narrative. And so they're trying to hold on. And so the more things start slipping out of their control, the more they squeeze, but the more they squeeze, the more people push back. And it really accelerated with the trucker protest, right? And people then all of a sudden had their bank accounts frozen and seized. And so that really woke up a lot of people. And then, you know, obviously with the Russia situation, Russia, Ukraine situation that's happening, it wasn't just now people. Now all the nations of the world realized, well, shoot, if one of three global super powers with nuclear weapons can have their bank account seized. What hope do I have? Which of course is none. So now it's like the people realize that the banking system doesn't work. The governments now realize the banking system doesn't work. And so they're even cranking the screws up even more, but they're losing this narrative. And so obviously we're on your alternative news station right now. I have my, my stations, Joe Rogan's reaching 200 million people a month, et cetera. And so the part that's really starting to keep me up at night is the control over that narrative. And that was one of the things I was very interested to talk to Alex Jones about. So if you look at the Alex Jones trial that's going on right now, if you look at the January 6th hearings that are going right now, if you look at the tornado cash situation that's going on right now, the one thing that connects all of those is all three of those are chipping away at freedom of speech. And so again, if it's a war of information and money, how do they control the narrative? Well, they have to control speech. And so Klaus Schwab is talking about this public-private partnership. It's really, again, it's just a communism 2.0. And so Karl Marx said, if I, if I summarize communism in one statement, it's abolition of private property. Klaus Schwab says, you'll own nothing, be happy right? Same thing. Marxism says we'll take over the means of production. Klaus Schwab says public-private partnership. And so the public-private partnership is they're using the private side to censor voices, right? We saw Mark Zuckerberg show up on Joe Rogan last week and say, yeah, the FBI told me to suppress stories. And we've seen Twitter now releasing information showing the same thing that Biden administration forced them to censor and actually deplatform people. So that's the private side is deplatforming people. And then if they get through the public, the, the private side filter, then there's the public side, which is now, well, let's sue them and let's put them in jail. And that's the part that's really scaring me really, really bad right now. I told my wife the other day, I think there's probably a above average chance in the next two years, I may not be able to do what I'm doing from the United States. And so uh, this may seem crazy, but twice, this is an ancient history, twice in the last 100 years, twice in the last century in the United States, 1941 with the Smith Act, 1918 with Sedition Act, they made it illegal to say anything critical of the government. And we're all Bitcoiners here. We're very critical of the way the government spends money, helicopter money, what the Federal Reserve is doing, et cetera. And what a scary world that will be if we can't even say anything critical and what is critical in the first place, right? And so of all the things happening, if we want to jump straight to it, man, that's something that's really keeping me up at night. No, let, let's let's unpack all of these. And I I have the bandwidth and I have, frankly, the ignorant, ignorance is the wrong word. I'm willing to get canceled by Bitcoin Twitter and go down these rabbit holes with you, Mark. I always appreciate and love our conversations. I know that we maybe not don't necessarily see eye to eye on everything, but I also like you and I have had conversations offline where I've just point blank asked you, I'm like, but like how, why? And I really, really do appreciate your perspective. So I want to start, let's start with Alex Jones conversation. This is something that's coming up in the chats as well. And you bring up the Sandy Hook trial that he's in. And on one hand, there is a freedom of speech aspect to this where we should have the ability to say what we want. There is another aspect of this that I do think warrants a conversation where who becomes the arbiter of truth? And that I think is more what this 
this and many of these cases are about is who is becoming the arbiter of truth? Where, where are we supposed to look for guidance in these matters when we're being told consistently like, oh, this is fake, that's fake. You have Google changing the way your search results come back. It's becoming harder and harder to find authentic, real first-person news sources, and you're getting everything second, third, even fourth hand. How do you, how do you stay combative to that sort of push by big tech while also understanding, I think, humanity you are not a terrible person. You are a very kind-hearted person, I know. I'll just be blunt. I think I think that was a terrible thing that Alex Jones did, point blank. Whether it's illegal or not is a separate issue, but to right. force and, people and that, to- that, And that's exactly, that's exactly that's a separate issue. So first of all, I didn't go to Alex Jones to talk about Sandy Hook. Totally. Uh, I'm, not a, I'm not a huge Alex Jones fan. I don't watch his content on a regular basis. And I didn't even go there to talk about that specifically- I was on his show. He actually let me host his news desk. He got up and left and like I hosted it. Me and Alex were there, uh, Svetsky and I, and we were talking about what we wanted to talk about. We were talking about changing the world to build, building uh, alternative systems, parallel structures, if you will. Bitcoin underpins that because we can't build these alternative structures, parallel structures without the freedom of payments. So he allowed me to host his desk and talk to his audience and, and we orange pilled everybody. Then I did interview him, which will be coming out later on my on some of my channels. And I did not go there to talk about Sandy Hook. And to be honest, I don't know that much about the intricate details of what he did, what he said, what he didn't say. So I don't really care about that, but here's, 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 he, he opened up and he gushed about it. So a couple facts. So one, there's a lot of things that the government has done since government's been around. We can go back to the Roman empire days. We can go back to the Iran Contra situation where they're buying and running cocaine and selling weapons to Iran. We can look at just recently in, in Minnesota or Michigan, governor Whitmire was, had, there was this plot to kidnap her and they found out that I think it was 10 of the 12 people that were in the plot were actually government plants that were all trying to get each other to do it. And so we know that the government has this history of doing some shady things. And the way that you build trust is with transparency. So if I was with my wife in bed and I'm texting on my phone at like midnight and she's like, Hey, who, who are you texting? I was like, but don't worry about it. Then she would get very suspicious of me. If I said, Oh, I'm talking to my mom. She wants to come over. Today, then, then it would be she would, they would build trust. So when we have these suspicious things that happen, and there's a lot of questions that need to be answered, if, if the government would come out and say, hey, here's the information, here's the fact, then it starts to build transparency. When they hide stuff, then it leads people to start speculating. Just like if I lied to my wife, she would start to speculate about what I may or may not do. So first off, you build trust through transparency. If the government wanted to stop people from speculating and the Alex Jones things, then they would just be transparent, first of all. Second of all, again, I don't know the intricacies of the, of the case, and I'm not here to defend him one way or another. What he told me, though, is if he, he, he goes live four hours a day, every day, four hours. He went through everything he ever talked about Sandy Hook ever, and it was 24 minutes of content. He goes live four hours a day. So all he ever said about Sandy Hook was 24 minutes. What he said to me, and I haven't gone back and watched it, and I don't have the facts, nor do I need to defend it. But what he said is he said that I said that this could be a staged event. I don't know if this is real. This may not have happened. He said that he, he admitted he said that. He told me he never one time said anybody's name. He's like, I don't know who their names are. I never said any of their names. I did question if that event happened. And if you guys remember at the time, there was all this stuff that came out, speculative stuff. And he said, I did question it, but I should have the right to question it. Since then... He's apologized, okay? He said that, yes, I said it. Yes, I apologized. So, okay, 
He questioned it. He apologized. That's it. Now, let's say that that's not true. Let's say that he specifically said, hey, this, this parent's a fool and he's an idiot because his kid was in that school and got killed and he should have been better. Well, that'd be horrible. That'd be super mean. As you said, I'm a kind man. I don't think that would be okay. No one should be insensitive like that. And if he hurts someone's feeling, that's bad. And, and I would say he shouldn't do that. But that's not a crime. That's not illegal. Not to question something. So I don't want to. I don't want to get into the weeds because I don't know that situation that well. But what I do know is what he told me, and I do know even if he had done worse things, it's not illegal. So that's kind of my stance on it. I mean, look, I Alex Jones has been right on numerous things. Whatever you feel about him or not, ultimately being an asshole isn't a crime. As much as we'd like to see assholes locked up, like it's not a it's not a crime. I just want to say I do not want to see assholes locked up. If you do something that's like bad, sure, why not? We can discuss yeah, it. So, but- so, so if I, if, if from my pulpit on my YouTube channel, for example, I said anybody that uh, whatever in this group they're bad and everyone should go out and kill them, and then people did right, and they said, hey, I watched Mark's video and he said we should go attack this group of people and we did. Well, okay, that's a crime, right? I told people to go do acts of violence. That that's a crime, right? I get that. But if I just said, ha ha, look at those people, they're stupid, they're ugly, they're fat, they're whatever, like. I almost believe we should have freedom of speech because we should know who those crazy people are. <laughs> like we, like we should know that. Right. So um, anyway, that's kind of my, my viewpoint on that. That's, that's his stance. That's what he told me. I haven't done enough research to know the intricacies. I don't really care. The way that I see freedom is very messy. It's not easy. Freedom is messy. And we have to understand that because of freedom, people will do things that you don't like. And an authoritarian tries to control that. And for freedom, I just say, Hey, you have the right to say that and go for it. Right. Oh, I, oh, Q, ahead, Q, what do you think? Go ahead. Wait, what, what does Q have to say? Come on. No, no, no. <laughs> I, like, I, I love, I love that because you're right. Freedom isn't free. Like there is a cost to it and we have to sort of give some things up to get the other things that we want back. Like I'm a big believer in, and I've gotten stuck on this idea that in a, especially in a system where, where we live in this country, there is a spectrum of people who want certain things from the state. Some people genuinely want nothing. They want their property. They want to be left the fuck alone and they will handle their business from there on out. Then there are people all the way on the other end who literally need everything handed to them from the state. And then there's a good majority of people in the middle who- Let, let, uh, let, me, let me address that. There's this David Hunter keeps dropping these comments here. Her teen feelings, question mark. Sandy Hook was horrific. The parents of dead children and saying it's not a crime, but Mark gives Alex permission to capitalize on the murder. Let me, let me address that question for a second. I'm giving Alex permission to capitalize on the murder of children. So let me, let me, let me reframe this. If, if, if you have a, if David Hunter NYC can think clearly and think about both sides of this. So uh, again, I said, what connects the dots of those three events, in my opinion, is attack on free speech. So tornado cash, what does tornado cash have to do with Alex Jones? Well, what they're doing is they're saying, well, terrorists use tornado cash to potentially do bad things. And so encryption is then bad because it empowers them to do that, even though encryption has been before the Supreme Court three times and been proven to be protected under freedom of speech speech. So they're attacking it from different angles. Now, back to the point of him saying, I'm giving him permission to capitalize on the murder. Did he? Did he really capitalize? Can you prove that, David Hunter? Because in his opinion, in what he told me, he only talked about it 24 minutes ever out of four hours a day of content. What did he capitalize on? He talked about it like a news story. It was a hot news story. He's a news reporter. He talked about it. Let's talk about capitalizing, though. Mainstream media has talked about Alex Jones talking about Sandy Hook 
for hundreds of hours. He talked about it for 24 minutes. Mainstream media has talked about it for hundreds of hours. Who's the one capitalizing on it? And to kind of to the point where if you have an open mind, what they do in order to attack things like freedoms, right? Freedoms that are protected under the constitution, no, no less, is they try to take things that are horrible, that everybody would generally have consensus. If, if someone takes a gun and shoots a child, everybody hates that. Unless you're some whack out crazy person, everybody agrees. That's horrible. I agree. Right. If 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 somebody says mean things about someone's kid who died, everybody would agree that that's that's wrong and that's bad. And that's 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 abhorrent. Everybody agrees with that. So they take something that has this general consensus and then they use that to then push their agenda. OK, so who's capitalizing on it? Him with his 24 minutes or mainstream media that has now hundreds of hours to push an agenda and now is trying to put laws in place to prevent other people from saying things. Who's capitalizing? Yeah, that's always, I was just saying that's, that's incredibly well put. And I think we see that again and again and again and what, what's happening with the way that mainstream media continues to be used to, to push government agendas, especially with COVID and everything else that's going on. You never use, it, it seems like they never let a good conflict go to waste. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference, which includes hands-on engagements at our proof-of-workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLive for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 Euros for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's both a free and paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts break down what's going on in the markets so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. Okay, so we've said January 6th, COVID, Alex Jones, Sandy Hook. What other trigger words can we say to get our YouTube channel taken down today? <laughs> yeah, we, we might need to we might need to bleep that part out. Uh, even mistake. the interview I did with him, I was like, shoot, this one may not make it onto my YouTube. It might just go on the podcast and maybe a rumble and Odyssey or something like that. I, I will say, like, I listened to his talk with Joe Rogan, and it was the irony of the three plus hour conversation being all catered around censorship to only then have Spotify censor and take down that conversation. It was a very sad action. And it, it goes back to this idea that he just, he's not mainstream media and mainstream media doesn't like him. And so therefore, instead of just rejecting him, letting him go off and do his own thing, it's we're going to attack him until he's lost all credibility. Whether or not you agree with him, whether or not you like him, he has been right 
good amount of times on a lot of things. And he does the work. He does the research to back up a lot of his claims. He also talks out of his ass a lot of times and will get called out for that. But well, part of it, part of it also, and he's, he's admitted this. And again, I'm not here to defend him. I'm not even a big fan of his. Uh, He asked me to come on the show. I'm trying to promote my book. I want to push Bitcoin to his audience. Right. So, but he also, he was a raging alcoholic and he used to make all his videos drunk and now he's sober. No, no, but no, no joke. He, he admits this. So during that period of time, he was a raging alcoholic and, and I'm not trying to give him a pass or anything like that, but it's important to understand the nuance of these situations. And so he was a raging alcoholic today. He's not, but the thing that I want to defend, the thing that I will die on the hill of is that we all should have the right to question things. I should have the right. I should have the freedom to question everything. All of science has advanced because men question things. And so what we're seeing today, again, back to the freedom of speech. Okay. Another, another example, if we jump off this story for a minute, my sister's a doctor, she's been an ER doctor for her whole career. She had to leave the state of California because she wouldn't take the jab. She's been working here in in Texas. And uh, she, she said, you know what? It was just a mandate. It's not a law. I'm going back to open up my own clinic because I can really help people. But one thing she's really afraid of right now is California's passing a law where if doctors speak out against consensus, that's a crime. If they say anything against medical consensus. Now, Holy the Wright shit. brothers, the Wright brothers flew an airplane which every single scientist in the world said could never happen. And if they didn't speak out against consensus, when we found penicillin, if they didn't speak out against Galileo, when he found gravity was a heretic and they wanted to kill him. So we always have to defend the right to question and seek out against consensus. And I will die on that hill. And I'm sorry if that offends uh, David Hunter NYC. Nah, fuck that. Everyone like that is so such a valid point where everyone feels so obligated to believe what they believe. And if anything, so much as throws a stone at it to maybe make you think differently about it. We are, we've just, I'm going to be blunt. Like our society has just gotten so weak around the idea of challenging what we know to be truths because for what they've just been spoon fed to us so much that we're just like, yeah, no, that's, that's the case. I want to talk California because you and I are a great state. Like, I breaks my heart. I'm gonna admit this live on air now. I'm gonna be leaving California at the end of the year, and I'm honestly pissed about it. I'm pissed because I can't afford this state. I can't stand the governor. I can't stand a lot of the regulations coming through. Why? <laughs> Why and how do Californians need to stand up to Gavin Newsom and some of the laws that are being put into place, or is it not possible? Where where are your stances on just how California has gone to the shitter? So I'm still in Austin. My story, you can find on my YouTube channel. I bought a little, what I consider a ranch coming from California. It's a ranch to me. People in in Texas laugh at me and say a ranch, anything less than a hundred acres is in a ranch, but whatever. It's a big, big parcel of land for me. I got cows, I got goats, I got chickens. And so part of me is like, Hey, what I really love in, uh, in, in Texas is the energy the people, the Galt's Gulch, right? And so I just feel this high level energy vibration when I'm here. The conversations that I have are amazing. I love my neighbors out here, out in the outskirts. I love the Bitcoin commons and being around that. But 
I live in California and like, I don't want to leave there. People ask me, Hey, are you going to move to Texas full time? I'm like, I hope not. And so, you know, P like you, I love the state. I don't want to leave it as bad as it is. And as fast as it's going downhill, most of the stuff that's being done doesn't really affect me on a day-to-day -day basis. I pulled my kids out of the crazy school system. The taxes are high. It's expensive, but I have a lot of resources, right? But part of me is like, look, I don't want to give up on this. This is my home. And so I need to stay here. I need to fight for this. I need to, I need to keep pushing forward with it until the point where I can't do that anymore. So if at some point, you know, they lock me back down in my house again, like what happened already with Newsom, I'll leave. I'm not going to stay living there with my freedoms impacted, but for right now, as crazy as it is, it doesn't really impact me. We saw today, well, the, over the last couple of days, California says they're going to stop selling ICE vehicles and internal combustion engine vehicles by 2035. But then at the same time, they're announcing that they're having rolling blackouts all through California. And please don't plug your electric vehicle in. And so it's crazy. From the outside, people ask me, how could you stay there? But at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect my life. And so for now, I'm, I'm going to stay and fight. I appreciate that. I, I wish I could afford to stay and fight. But I, I did too many of the numbers on what my taxes are in any state that doesn't have a state income tax. And let me tell you, the income the income increase from a move like that for me is more than my next three raises would be combined. Like that's how much I lose in taxes. And and then and then gas and then food and and all that too. Yeah. And and let's not forget the fact that like I probably need to figure out a way for my parents to to give me their house to then sell it to then go get my own house. Cause God help me if I actually want to buy, actually own my own home here in California. But let me tell you, like there is no better state in the world. My theory on this and what I've come to is it really is Southern California coastline. No place. I don't care. No place in Europe, no place in Australia, no place in the rest of the world that is better than this. And so you kind of got to pay that premium. You got to, I just wish the jackass that is Gavin Newsom just wasn't in power anymore. And <laughs> it's going to take more than him being not in power to fix no, California though. I, you know. I actually disagree. I think it could be something as simple as a shift between having just an overly left leaning state government and start to have a balance and you start to introduce other ideas in the state government level. Something as simple as that will start to push back on some of these policies that are just getting jammed down Californians' throats. But and one I thing that's going to shift one one thing that's going to shift that tide cue is a lot of left people. And I remember the very first conversation we had, and you're like, "I'm a leftist, right?" A lot. Of, what's happened is that the left has shifted so much now; they're kind of finding themselves on the other side. And I'm not. I hate labels, so left, right, whatever that means, right? I'm an individual. Like I want freedom in my life. But one of my wife's friends, she lives in Venice, in California, in Venice, and she's like this crazy, bleeding heart, left wing liberal person, right? But Venice has gotten so bad. The homelessness problem is so bad. The drug problem is so bad. She's like, I can't take it anymore. And now I see how bad these policies are. So what? What? one thing Alex and I talk about back to our book again, if you haven't checked it out on Commerce Manifesto, shameless plug. We talk about that people haven't really thought through past a first order thinking. So what do I mean by that? Well, let's just give people money to not work. That sounds good. I mean, you know, there's unfortunate people and, you know, some of these people, you know, it's super expensive in California. So why don't we give them some extra money? That sounds great. I like that idea. Okay. But what happens if we do that? Well, if we do that, then people don't work. 
Okay. Well, what happens if people sit around all day with time on their hands? Well, then they'll probably get into mischievous things like drug use. Okay. And then what happens? Well, now we have a bunch of drag, drug addicts on the street. And then what happens? Well, then the streets are filled with trash. Right. And so if you think of a second, third, fourth, fifth order, you start to realize how bad they are. Well, most people don't but they're living through it right now. They're literally seeing it happen in front of their eyes. And so it's going to take more than one person. I would agree with what P said, but we're seeing like the whole state of California has witnessed what happens when these policies happen in real time and they do not like it. It is bad. It's real bad. How do you think we, we educate people more effectively? I know you talked about, you know, homeschooling your own children. What do you think, how can we focus on that as a society? What types of systems can we create that help people be able to think through those second, third, fourth order effects and to more effectively critically think? I think, so first of all, we live in, the, the, just like the human body is a complex system, like the world, the economy is a complex system, the world's a complex system. And so we didn't, we didn't get here overnight and we don't get out of it overnight. Like with a complex system, you treat one thing and then you have these unintended consequences in other areas. But I'd say it happens over a longer period of time. And really it starts with having people get back to a place of responsibility so people need to have consequence installed in their life, which of course was what Bitcoin does, right? Bitcoin gives us consequence. If we lose our Bitcoin, <laughs> no one's going to print more Bitcoin and give it to us, right? And so we start to build consequence. We start to take responsibility for ourselves. I start to learn how to you know, store my own money, manage my own money. We start to build that. And over a period of time, that starts to shift the balance. So how did things shift from the you know, 50s and 60s to where they are today? And it was through a period of breaking down the family unit, taking away responsibility, Responsibility. Let the government take care of your education and take care of your health care and take care of your retirement. And let, let's just take care of everything for you. You don't need any responsibility. Oh, by the way, if you don't want to work, no problem. And so we have to reverse that. It's not easy. So think of a lion. A lion lives on the plane and is the king of the jungle, right? It's the, it's the most fierce the apex predator out there. And uh, it's free but it's not an easy life for that lion, right? So the lion has to defend its territory. It has to fight all the time. It may not eat for you know periods of time. It has to deal with hunters, things like that. So it's free, but it's not safe. Now we can take that lion and we could make it really safe. We can put it in a cage in a zoo and we can give it a piece of food every day and we can inject it full of you know antibiotics, et cetera. And now that lion is safe, but it's not free. The problem is how do we get a, a lion that's been growing up in captivity to go back and be free again? The answer is you don't, right? A lion can't go back into the wild after it's been raised in captivity. Thankfully, we're not animals. <laughs> we're humans. And so we can change faster. It's just not easy. And so my dad would tell my mom when I was a kid, I didn't want to eat vegetables. He would, she would, he would tell my mom, don't worry. If he's hungry enough, he'll eat. Right. And so if people are hungry enough, they'll work. If you go to Mexico or any other country where they don't have these social safety nets, everybody works. And so we'll get there, but it's a long process through education and just Put, putting back this personal responsibility. And, and I think we'll get there, but it, but it won't be easy. What do you think it's going to take for that to actually happen though? Do you think that's, that's like a, a sharp shock to the system? Do you think that's something like the collapse? We have to a... end the, we have to end the fiat money system. And the reason why is because like, I'm sure you guys have all had friends that were, you know, hooked on drugs, painkillers, alcohol, whatever it may be. Right. And you know, they have a problem with that. 
and and you love them. Maybe it's a family member, a good friend, et cetera. And you want them to get help and you're, you'll offer like, hey, I'll, I'll pay to put you there. I'll help you. But they don't want your help, right? They have to hit rock bottom usually before they can achieve that. And so I think, unfortunately, we have to we have to hit rock bottom. And a lot of people are, but different people have their different levels of what that rock bottom is. But it's that fiat money system that constantly enables them right? Constantly allows them to grow, uh, live in this society where there's no consequence or responsibility required. Like my daughter just graduated high school. If I just continue to give her money for the rest of her life and never make her do any work, she never will. So I have to cut her off at some point, right? And so it's kind of the same thing. So we need to end the fiat money system. As I said, Bitcoin is what kind of really brings back that consequence and responsibility. People would then hit rock bottom and then move forward. Now our goal my goal anyway, is that we understand that transition is going to be painful for a lot of people. A lot of those lions that grew up in captivity is going to be painful. So how can we cushion that blow? And maybe that's a better question to talk about. How do we cushion that blow? We see the Titanic sinking. Like how many people can we get off of those, off of the ship and into the lifeboats? And so I, the way I think about that is again, through education and, and we're seeing it, right? We're really seeing this bifurcation across all my platforms. I get thousands of comments a week. So I really see it. It's almost like keeping a finger on the pulse. It seems like and I'm constantly amazed by the lemmings and the victims that are out there and these people in my comments, and it makes me so mad. Um, so I'm, I'm amazed by that. But at the same time, I'm also encouraged by how many people are waking up and they're realizing it and they're taking back control and sovereignty of their life. So we're seeing this bifurcation. And so we have to continue to educate, continue to give them the tools to do that. And I, I believe those people that are waking, those people that are building what I'm, again, calling these parallel structures. So like in Texas, like the Beef Initiative, for example, or the homeschool pods, or my sister who's left traditional medicine to go treat people independently. As more people leave to go create these, these parallel structures, these parallel societies, of course, Bitcoin underpins that because it's, without the payments, you can't do any of that. We're, we're swinging the tide. We're offloading people into these lifeboats. We'll cushion the inevitable blow. And that's probably the best we can do. Do you think, though, that this unwind from sort of the fiat system, like I, I feel more and more as each day goes on that in my lifetime, at least, there will be some semblance of a fiat system built on top of some sort of a sound money system, at least in this first iteration to get out of things. And I'm just curious how you feel some of those things will play out both domestically as well as on a, on a global stage. How, how's the dollar going to die in your opinion? Gradually then suddenly. I think about, I often use in a lot of my presentations, I use a quote from Nietzsche to kind of close things off. And so we'll talk about, you know, the macro environment, geopolitical situation, and how the inevitable is coming, the inevitable crash. And then of course we have Bitcoin, right? And so this Nietzsche quote is, that which is falling shall ye also push, right? So the system is already crumbling on, under its own weight. It doesn't work. And so Bitcoin's just kind of helping push that along, right? And that's why even we've seen Christine Lagarde, you know, say that we need to remove the exits. We can't allow people to exit. And so capital controls is always that last piece of an empire. China, it does capital controls, right? Don't allow the capital to leave. We have to keep people stuck in it. The one thing though, back to the fiat money system is a couple things. So one, everyone thinks about the dollar dying, right? The dollar is going to die. The dollar is going to end, et cetera. Well, the dollar took over the reserves status of the world from the pound sterling, you know, a hundred years ago, but the pound sterling is still around today. It's still being used. So just because it lost its place in the world doesn't mean it disappears. And so we might see something like that with the dollar, but they're doing their own damage and, and destruction on their own, right? So continually printing, continual debasement. 
And currencies were kind of at that last inning, as I kind of said, we're at this kind of 100-year end of the sovereign debt bubble. And so what happens is the the central banks around the world, not just the Fed, but the Bank of Japan's even in a worse place. The Bank of England's in a really bad place. Uh, the ECB's in a bad place. China's in a horrible place where they're kind of at the end of this Ponzi game where when they continue to print money, then inflation just continues to rage and all these distortions happen in the market, supply chains breaking down, et cetera. But if they don't keep printing, then the Ponzi and drops and everything falls. And so they're kind of, we're kind of at this precipice. We're kind of at this defining moment and which is then forcing people to find these solutions that rock bottom and they're exiting. How does it look moving forward? I think more and more people will continue to find the exits. As more people find the exits, it continues to put more pressure on these fiat money systems. At some point, every fiat currency, uh, 51 of 52 countries that have reached 125% debt to GDP have failed. The only one that hasn't is Japan, and it's it's about to. And so what happens is when a fiat currency fails, they have to do something to reintroduce trust back. I was just reading about Zimbabwe. So Zimbabwe went through like, the, the hyperinflation was so high that I, that I don't even know what the number it was like a quintillion, quintillion percent profit, sorry, inflation in a year. And then uh, they changed the government over and then they pegged the Zimbabwe dollar back. Well, first they went to the dollar. After years, they said, okay, well, let's try our own currency again. So they had to reattach it to the dollar to get trust. That's the first step. Then they said, okay, now let's try our own currency again, but we're going to peg the Zimbabwe currency one-to-one -one with the dollar. And then it was two to one and 25 to one and 50 to one and 500 to one. And uh, here we are back to Zimbabwe's currency crashing. So the, the, the fiat currencies are at their end of the rope. The basement is here. There's no way out of it. And the, the only dying gasp of hope would be to somehow reback it was something that would be that could bring trust back. So that could be going back to a gold standard. And a lot of people think that could be maybe this interim step before we go to a Bitcoin standard. I don't think Bitcoin is ready to take main stage and take the entire world on its back right now at this second today. So we see central banks are net buyers of gold. They have been for many years now at this point. Of course, we see what's happening with Russia and China. They've been accumulating massive amounts of gold. Now the BRICS nations, which make up now 50% of the population in the world, Half the world is now part of the BRICS. And not just that, but 60% of the gold production comes from those BRICS nations, where less than 20% comes from the US and England. So now they're setting up their own LBMA competitor to price gold. And so maybe you know they try to go to this gold standard, which is like this medium that will fail again, because gold already fails, fails, it fails because of the centralization aspect. And then maybe we go to more of a Bitcoin standard. I don't see fiat being put on top of Bitcoin. I don't think that really works, but maybe some sort of like a fractional reserve type lending system could. Fair. No, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, we talked, you brought up Japan. We talked about Japan briefly at the beginning. You also brought up Canada and sort of the trucker protest that has now turned Canada into what a lot of people thought was a, a normal, safe place to now it is a dictatorship just north of our borders. We talked at the beginning of this episode about the energy crisis going on in Europe, some energy bills coming out of the UK. We've seen the futures markets in Germany as well. They've started to taper off a little bit. I'm curious with these G G7 countries. Jesus, it's Wednesday. My brain's still a little fried. These G7, yeah, G7. countries, <laughs> we're, we're starting to see the decay of their fiat currencies, but th this was the gold standard. Developing nations around the world looked up to these countries, the way they built themselves, the way they built their currencies, but now we're starting to see the deterioration. Japan and the yen are, are very close to, if not already just done. We see the euro 
consistently lower and lower versus the dollar. And I'm just wishing I lived in Europe right now more than ever, weirdly enough. But where, what are these countries and what are your expectations for a country like Japan or the greater Europe region to have to adapt when the inevitable happens and their fiat currency collapses? You know, I, I'm, I'm not a doom and gloom guy, although, like I said, I try to reach people with problems and then bring them in. So a lot of times my content may appear doom and gloom. And, and the reality is the, the realist in me believes that we still have more pain ahead. And then, and then I do believe, you know, the system will reset and we have all this hope and prosperity on the other side. But I think there's more pain ahead and, and we can see this. And so you asked the question about Europe specifically. Europe's in dire straits, man. Like, over the next year, it's, it's going to be a, a serious situation. I have a video on my channel talking about the, the collapse of the EU and it breaking apart. You know, they basically cobbled all these nations together and you have kind of Germany, which is like this economic powerhouse of Europe. And it's the economic powerhouse because that's where the manufacturing bases are. And so it has all this exports and it and, and you know has this good economy, which is interesting. Well, that's a whole other rabbit hole I won't go into. But this fourth turning kind of a thing, hard times create strong men, strong men create great times. And so Germany coming out of World War II was forced to pay war reparations, which led to hyperinflation, and they had to rebuild their country at the same time. And so those hard times created strong men, but now the, the, they have really weak times. Weak men created bad times. Uh, but so Germany now has decided to shut off their nuclear power over the last decade, they've shut that down. They don't get any natural gas out of the ground anymore. And they're just dependent on Russia for their energy. But what's important not to dig into that specifically, but they're pulling Europe along. But then you have the pigs nations, right? Which Portugal, Italy, Greece, Spain, those nations need to be dragged along. So Greece has gone through multiple bailouts over the last decade, austerity packages, et cetera. And so now Europe is introducing something called the ECB is introducing something called fragmentation, where basically they take the money from the good countries and they give it to the bad countries. But how long is that going to go for? That's not going to last very long and it's already failing. But then that's just the first problem. The, the worst problem is, is that because of the energy crisis that's happening now, Germany is actually de-industrializing. So they've been able to build all the, the, become this economic engine, build, become this powerhouse of manufacturing. But now because they can't afford the energy, the factories are shutting down. So they're shutting the factories down. The factories are moving. And so now there's no output. Now they're net importers for the first time instead of being exporters. And so when that falls apart, the whole thing falls apart. And I think this is going to come to a head pretty quickly. We never know how many more, how many more magic tricks these bankers have up their sleeves, but it's kind of like this. It's like coming together closer, 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 and it's coming there. So I think Europe, I would expect some big fireworks to happen uh, there uh, before we see it in the US. So I want to present a question or an idea that we talked about, about Europe at the very beginning. And I'm sure you saw, or if you didn't, there was a picture going around of a woman who owns a bakery in Leicester County, whose electricity bill is essentially five X crazy, scary, and a, and a tough situation to be in. Yes. But what I'm really concerned about what I'm seeing is the response on social media has been, we need the state to step in. We need price controls. We need them to limit how much these electricity companies can charge for energy. For me, the things that I've studied, the things that I've read, this is the kiss of death. This reads exactly like a price control over apples right right during the French Revolution that inevitably led to one of the most famous lines of let them eat cake. I'm, I'm curious your thoughts. Do you think we're going doom and gloom, Mark? You're, you're on the doom and gloom show. So uh, I, I can talk doom and gloom. I'm, I'm good with doom porn. You know, to, to show how out of state they are, I mean, I would I would say look at the United States, right? So Grantham, the energy secretary of the United States, she was asked in a in a in a 
conversation, like talking about the strategic petroleum reserves being drained. And well, how many barrels of oil does the U.S. use in a day? She couldn't answer that. It's like, wait a minute, like that, that's your one job. Like you don't know the answer. But the the let them eat cake moment is now they're saying, oh, you know, these people they can't they can't afford their electricity bill, they can't afford gas. They should just go buy electric vehicles then. <laughs> so that's like uh, we'll just go buy an eighty thousand dollar vehicle since you can't afford to put gas in your car, kind of a thing. On the doom and gloom side, a couple things come to mind. So it seems like really, if you again go back through history, the one big problem that governments have is obviously losing control of the people. That's actually where we started, right? This control and this narrative. And so the one big problem that every country is facing right now is these uh, populist uprisings, right? Civil unrest. And so humans can go through all types of pain. We can put up with all types of things, but when you can't eat and specifically can't feed your kids, it's on, right? Game on. They call it nine meals to anarchy. You don't eat for nine meals and like it's, it's game on. And so it's this delicate balance of the, on the doom side, this is what Alex Jones was talking about back to bring him up, but the leaders, the central planners wanting to control scarce resources, food and energy. So if they can control scarce resources, then you depend on them for the most essential things. And when you depend on them for the most essential things, you don't have time or care about higher level things. So go to third world nations, even go to Mexico. It's not even that bad. Nobody cares about gender, you know, pronouns. Nobody cares. Nobody even cares about the government because they're just trying to survive. And so you go to these third world countries, they're just trying to stay alive. So when you really restrict the scarce resources of food and energy, people just don't concern themselves with that. Like government, go ahead, do whatever you're going to do. Just let me depend on you. I did a video on my channel last week. I think it was. And I was talking about how the food system is under attack, the scarce resources. And I, and I, I love to use these historical narratives. A lot of people don't know this, but in the 1800s, 1806, to be exact, Lewis and Clark, the settlers, the explorers that went from east to west and explored the United States, they wrote in their journal that uh, the bison were so plentiful on the plains that they would wait hours for the bison to go by. And when the bison would come over, it would darken the plains is what they said in their writings. And, and historians estimate that there was between 30 to 60 million bison roaming uh, America, the USA at that time. Well, when they were trying to settle from east to west, they wanted to run railroads and they couldn't run the railroads because the Native Americans, the Indians were running around. And they said, well, hey, we got to get these Indians onto reservations. We have to control them. But we can never control them if they have access to food. And so the plan was, is let's bring everybody over and kill as many bison as we can. And from 1806, when there's 30 to 60 million bison to about 1870, so in about 65 years, there was about 350 left, 350. And all the Native Americans were in reservations because they needed the, the handouts from the government. And so um, that's what I think about those scarce resources and the way the governments can, can use those to control them. So when it comes to energy, when it comes to food, that's what they do. And I don't know, that, there's the doom porn for you if you wanted it. <laughs> Sorry to drop that on you. It's heavy. Please, no, it's please do not true. apologize. I have a, oh, there's an echo coming through. Sorry. I have a question that is in a different direction than the one we've been talking about, Q. Is there anything else you want to mine on this specific topic before I... No, I, I've... I've... I've doom porned us enough. Let let's shift let's shift gears. I will say I don't think it's doom porn necessarily. I think it's basically it's only by identifying the issues as they are actually happening around us that we can chart a path through the challenges that 
leads to the optimistic and more awesome outcome. So maybe it's like realism. I, I see, I see, but my buddy, David Hunter, NYC is back in the comments. India is needed handouts from the government. What I, I did you not miss? Did you, did you miss the whole story? That's <laughs> gotta the be deliberate misinterpretation after they took away all the food. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, yeah the um, claim to be clear is they artificially created the necessity for those handouts by taking the away all the food, by isolating them into these smaller reservations, by, you know, creating systems that basically force them to depend on the government. Then they needed those handouts and that was a system of control. Yep, exactly. So Mark, I want to ask, how did you come to understand what Bitcoin is and why it is so important? What was your personal path to Bitcoin? Yeah, that's a good one. So my grandfather's decorated World War II vet, Purple Heart winner, or recipient, I should say. My father flew jets in Vietnam. My father was in the Air Force. I was born into a military family. And with that lineage, I just thought I would go to war one day. So that kind of gives you an idea of my upbringing. I grew up in South Texas, um, in Texas, hunting with my grandfather. And so that was I, I kind of grew up with this conservative mindset. My parents were very active politically, grassroots politically and whatnot. We still talk politics around our kitchen table. So it's just kind of gives you an idea of my frame and where I came from. I, uh, right out of high school, 18 years old, started buying bank-owned repos, started fixing and flipping houses. And like, I did really, really good for myself. I built a couple of businesses, had a Fortune 500 exit, made a bunch of money. And I thought it was super smart. 2008 came and the financial crisis just wiped me out, like millions of other people. And it made me go, wait a minute, like I'm pretty good at making money, but like there's this whole financial casino going on that I don't know anything about. Like what that has power over my life, apparently. I need to figure this out. And uh, so I vowed to myself and my family, like this is never going to happen again. I'm going to figure this out. So I've spent the last 12, 13 years like digging into the financial system. I very quickly became a gold bug. I realized very quickly the fiat money system was at the root of all these problems. Watching like Mike Maloney and, and Peter Schiff, I was like, okay, the, the fiat money system is the problem. I'm a gold bug now. And then I just started getting really disillusioned with politics because after what happened after the reforms came out, the banking reforms and the bailouts after 2008, I got very disillusioned with politics. Probably by like 2012, I was just like, I'm done with this. Like, I, I don't even want to pay attention to this anymore. But I got a family to take care of. Now I got kids and like, I got to, I got to provide for them. So I got to figure this, this out. Right. I was subscribing to a newsletter called Sovereign Man, which is still written today. So shout out to, to James and Sovereign Man. And he still writes it today. And he basically makes the case, like I wouldn't put all my money into one stock. So why would I have my entire life in one country? So it's jurisdictional arbitrage or flag theory, whatever you want to call it. So I started listening to him and he was very instrumental in my worldview. And yeah, that's right. Why would I have my whole life in one country, especially one country that I see going downhill and politics isn't going to save anything. So I don't want to engage in that. I just got to kind of start looking out for myself. And so it was kind of selfish. Like I want to make sure my family doesn't get affected again. And so I started looking at this geo jurisdictional arbitrage. And so it was 2015. And I was actually working with an attorney he referred me to in Panama, and I was setting up a trust and a bank account in Panama to get money out offshore out of the U.S. jurisdictional banking system and to start working on a path to residency and then, and then citizenship. And I had looked at Bitcoin, really it caught my eye like 2012, 2013 as it was running up and then it crashed and I was like, kind of like whatever. And then like it kind of came back across my desk again. And I was like, wait a minute, this is exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get money outside of the traditional banking system. It's the same thing. So I ended up just buying a bunch of Bitcoin. I never ended up going with the, Pan the Panama thing. 
And so I got into it. I got into it specifically to get money out of the banking system, which interesting enough is I think one of the best ways to get people into Bitcoin today, not as an investment. It's a way to get into a parallel system. So that's what I got into it. But then as I started, you know, you get a little skin in the game, you buy a little bit, you start looking into it. And then I was like, wow, actually, now we have a tool that we can win. This is actually something we can use. And then I had hope. So I was disillusioned in the system. And then I had hope because I finally, you know, all these libertarians and anarchists and whatever, they all, you know, talk about this, but they have no plan. They have no tool. But now we do. Now we have a tool to win, a, peace, a peaceful tool. And so that's, that's how I got my way in. And once I figured that out, I'm like, well, shoot, I got to tell everybody I know. And so I did. And I haven't shut up about it ever since. Now, I will. Then I went into the crypto rabbit hole. Someone tried to out me on Twitter yesterday or the day before and said, oh, we know about your past, Mark. I'm open about it. I went into the crypto space from 2016 to 2019. I started writing a cryptocurrency research newsletter. I, every month I'd write about 25 pages of research that I did on different crypto, crypto projects, decentralized exchanges or privacy coins, et cetera. And after all those years, personally researching and publishing over a thousand pages of research, I realized that Bitcoin is the only option that we have. So I don't hide from that. I haven't deleted any of the stuff. It's there. That's part of my journey. I'm actually proud of it. It doesn't come up from a place of ignorance. It comes from a place of me doing the work. So that, that's, that's my story in a nutshell. Good stuff. Good stuff. I think that, yeah, it's so interesting to me to see the, the, <laughs> the battles that get fought through Twitter, especially in this bear market. It's like people identify, I don't know, <laughs> I mean, we all do it, I guess, but this, there's this infighting that happens that I think can be super counterproductive. And I think everybody should be able to be candid and acknowledge the things that they've done and the, the, the growth that they've had and the mistakes that they've made and have that be a part of their journey, especially in Bitcoin, because so many of us came to Bitcoin through the, the, the larger cryptocurrency space. Why do you or think that Bitcoin is? Bitcoin casino that is Wall Street. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, Well, you know why it is? It's, it's the, the, the Teddy Roosevelt talk about the man in the arena, right? It's so much easier to tear down. You guys know the man in the arena? Uh, vaguely, cute, 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 very cute vaguely. Yeah, head. you'll do a better job of describing it than I can. So, I I, I was explaining. So, it's, so Teddy Roosevelt gave this uh, this speech, and he, and he talks about the man in the arena. I'll tell you what it is here. Okay, here. So he said, I'll just read just the first part of it. He said, "It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. That's not who counts." The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings. So it's the man who's doing stuff. Dude, I've been putting out freaking content. I'm not hiding. I haven't deleted a freaking thing. You can see my journey. I tell you my stories. Yeah, I got, I, I made a bunch of money. I got wiped out in 2008. People leave me comments on my YouTube. Why would I ever lost, why would I ever listen to somebody who lost money in 2008? I, I come, I reply that smooth seas never made a skilled sailor, right? It's only through adversity that we grow. And so all the people that work for me, I tell my staff, like, I want, I want people making mistakes. Like, I don't want people that are afraid to try. I want people making mistakes. And so um, I interviewed Robert Kiyosaki recently, and I told him how people ask that question. And he goes, why would people even ask such a stupid question? Right? And it's like, 
because we're all going to make mistakes and we should all use those mistakes to learn. So anyway, it's easier to tear down. It's easier to make fun, right? Than it is to build and to create. I also, to build off of P what you're saying, that the question I always have, and to be honest, I just laugh. I laugh at a lot of this. A lot of it's just infighting, but the same group of people who talk about, they want freedom, real freedom. They want to be able to say what they want to say, do what they want to do, spend money how they see fit, get really fucking butthurt when someone says or does something that just is against what they do. Even if it's something is like, I made this mistake. These are the mistakes I made. How? Let me share this so that you don't have to go down that path and make those same mistakes. There's a beautiful quote from the Stoics where I'm going to butcher it like a motherfucker, but like a foolish man just learns from his own mistakes and a wise man learns from the mistakes of others as well as his own. So I caution anyone who sees or hears this conversation as like a shit coin apologist. It's far from it. I welcome everyone bashing on shit coiners, but at the same time, we can't just stay in our own little bubble and only accept the ideas and viewpoints that align with these beliefs. That's a dangerous precedent to set in Bitcoin and, and or out of Bitcoin. And that's why freedom of speech is so important, right? It's it's through discussion. I think you actually asked me in the beginning, like, how do we find truth? Who's this arbiter of truth? And truth comes through discussion and discovery. And so we all need to, I grew up doing martial arts and I still like to train a little bit of Muay Thai. And, you know, you can practice all day on a bag, but what you really want to do is jump in a ring and spar with other people. And that's what I like to do with my conversations. It's like this verbal sparring. I'm not trying to win. It's just with a friend, right? And we're just going back and forth and we're uh, Svetsky, he's staying here with me and him and I spent quite a bit of time this morning going over these deep topics. And I'm like, I don't know if you should talk about it like that. And we went back and forth, but it's like this verbal sparring. And that's how we sh sharpen our own skills. It's how we find truth. We find the techniques that work properly for us. So that's kind of the way that I look at it. I think it's important. It's one thing that's really helped me is having to, having to, you know, be public, right? I've been creating content now for, for many years and I get thousands of comments. It's really made me sharpen my own skill set. where before I put anything out, I have to think through it. I have to scrutinize it. I have to get all the receipts for it. I have to be prepared to discuss it. I, I, I don't really want to say defended. I, I guess I want to defend whatever I put out, but I'm willing to be proven wrong. If somebody could intelligently you know, say, Hey, you're wrong. Sometimes I'll do like a 20 minute video with like 30 facts, charts, graphs, headlines. Right. And someone's like, Oh, you're an idiot. Everything you said was wrong. And I'm like, well, I had like 30 facts. Please feel free to tell me which of those were wrong. I'm happy to discuss it, but Oh, you're an idiot. So I think, I think that's been helpful. And I think everybody should try to engage in it. Twitter's great for that. If you use it that way to like discuss these ideas. It can be, although I keep catching myself in those scenarios of like, God damn it. How have I gone for four tweets back and forth and I'm still having this conversation on Twitter. I want to talk polarization and I want to give you the opportunity to share the graphic that if, if you have not read the Uncommunist Manifesto, it will take you less than a day to read this thing. It should be required reading for all Bitcoiners who want to talk and understand the political sphere. But also, I think the most important thing is you get a better sense of how we have been polarized against each other and created this sort of us versus you when it's really all of us versus them. And the, the them have done a very good job of hiding themselves. You see the polarization in every aspect of our society now. And I'm curious, where do you attribute this polarization from coming from? 
Well, it's certainly being pushed. So naturally, people are drawn to polarizing figures. So if you go back and look at every movement throughout history and look at the, the leaders of those movements, they're naturally polarizing figures. So Jesus Christ or Hitler, right, the two extremes, but they're both polarizing figures. And you all know people like this, right? People who wear their heart on their sleeve. They, they, they'll tell you they love you and they encourage you and they, they, they make you feel really good about yourself. Um, but then some people, they turn off. And so polarizing means you have this real strong attraction, attraction of love, but also this strong hate at the same time. I don't consider myself to be a polarizing figure. I just, I'm kind of neutral. I kind of like to be liked by everybody, but then that's real boring, right? So polarizing figures are the, are the leaders, but to your point or to, to your question, where is it coming from? Well, it's, it's really being pushed on us. So back to kind of the book again, shill it again. Uh, I saw someone ask if there's an audio version. Yeah. On Amazon, you can get the audiobook version. Alex and I actually wrote, recorded ourselves, but in, in the original Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx basically creates this division between two arbitrary classes, the poor and the rich, right? Bourgeoisie and proletariat. And he says, there's these two classes and they hate each other, right? The, the, the rich are the oppressors and they oppress the poor and the poor are victims and they're oppressed. And so he pits two people, arbitrary classes against each other. Like, uh, at what point do I go from poor to rich? And then if I cross into the rich class am i automatically an oppressor now like you know but anyway uh what we that that's where you know this really started i guess it was put in in book form and really highlighted this this struggle but what we have today is like neo-marxism or cultural marxism and now it's identity politics right so it used to be rich against poor now it's black against white and male against female and gay against straight and whatever right Every single class or identity now is struggling against each other, and the media wants to stoke it. Now, why? Why would they want to stoke it? Well, back to the original book, you're poor. You're the proletariat. He says in the original book, you have nothing to offer but your labor. Your labor will never equate to capital. You'll never get ahead. The bourgeoisie are always going to oppress you. You're a victim. You can't get by on your own. So what you need is a savior. And guess what? I'm here to save you. I, the state, will come and save you. I will take the money from those horrible, greedy people, and I will give it to you. And so if I can say, hey, you're black, you're white, you're gay, you're straight, you're female, whatever, you're never going to get ahead. You're oppressed. The system is systemic against you. It's a, it's a male toxicity or whatever it is. You're a victim. You need a savior. And of course, the state is the savior. So I think that's why it's really been pushed. It was started back with the original Communist Manifesto. I think that's why it's bigger and, and alive more today than ever. And then, of course, there's the, you know, together we, we succeed and divided we fall kind of a thing. But mostly the savior uh, victim aspect. Do you mind? I, I know it'll probably be a little bit difficult to show everyone the picture, but walk us through the liberal conservative spectrum, because that but you shattered my reality at the conference showing me that. Yeah, it's probably not going to work super good, but let's see. So basically what we're arguing here with this is the spectrum. And what we see over on uh, this side right here is uh, politics. And so left to right. So communism, people would say communism or socialism would be left. And people would say fascism would be right wing. So right wing, left wing. We might say democracy, you know, Republicans are right, Democrats are left. So everyone's arguing on this spectrum, left and right. 
But we say all of that is collectivism. And so we say we want to be over here, which is capitalism, which is Bitcoin, which is independence, which is individualism. And so what we make the argument in the book is that capitalism is not a political modality. Capitalism is natural emergent order. Capitalism is taking my property and, and my scarce resources and using them more efficiently and creatively. So I used to carry one rock at a time. Then I decided to take some sticks and some logs and make a wheelbarrow. And now I carry 10 rocks at a time. So I've used my resources and I've become more efficient. That's capitalism. The caveman had a fire and the other guy had a rabbit that he killed. And the guy with the rabbit says, hey, if I can cook my rabbit on your fire, then I'll share it with you. Division of labor. It's capitalism. Capitalism is not a political modality. Kids in preschool are trading chips and sandwiches. Capitalism. In prison, you have capitalism, right? Cigarettes or currency or whatever, right? And even in a communist structure, you have capitalism. Those are just black markets. So capitalism works in spite of politics. Politics is like a, like a parasite that attaches to capitalism and tries to extract wealth out like a parasite would. But just like a parasite, the goal is to extract as much as you can from the host without killing the host. Now, maybe in the, the early versions of communism, so the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia in 1917, it killed the host, right? The USSR collapsed. In Hitler, Germany, it killed the host, right? It fell. Mao's China, the Great Leap Forward, it almost killed the host. In the 80s, they just figured out in enough time, they opened up some free ports, some trades, sprinkled a little bit more capitalism, and now it's kind of come back. So it's almost like this, this parasite of politics that attaches itself to capitalism keeps has been reiterating, 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 and it's kind of figured out a way to now have this optimum level where it still allows wealth to be created and still extract as much wealth at the same time. Do you think we have in the United States presently in 2022, a capitalist system in place? <laughs> That's a great question. And I can answer it very, very good. I can give you a good answer for that. I can give you a qualitative, a quantitative answer for that. So in the original communist manifesto book, Karl Marx lays out 10 points of communism. So he says, in order to build a communist society, we need these 10 things. Okay. That's his words, not mine. I'm going to pull it up here. Points. Communism. Okay. So he says, in order to have a communist society, we need these 10 things. Quantitatively, the United States has seven of the 10 in place. So does that make the United States a capitalist society or a communist society? Well, we have seven of the 10 things. So let me read them to you. Maybe, maybe these make sense. A heavy progressive or graduated income tax. Q just said he has to leave California, can't afford the progressive income tax, so check. How about this one? Centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank. Hmm, a central bank? Yeah, I guess we have that one too. How about centralization of the means of communication and transport? So sort of like Zuckerberg saying the FBI or like Twitter said that the Biden administration told them to censor stuff. So centralization of the means of communication. Obviously, they run the FCC, which regulates all the communication, right? I can keep going on. But you get my point. Oh, how about this one? Free education for all children in public schools. <laughs> so, so quantitatively, we have seven of the 10 points in place. So I'll ask the question back to you, Q. If we have seven of the 10 points of communism, do you think we're a capitalist society or a communist society? 
I do it's, not think we it, live in a capitalist society. It, like it's, a spe- it's, it's a spectrum, right? It's a spectrum. A lot of people ask me, like, is when was the point that we were the most capitalist? So, so it's a spectrum, right? If 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 I have to give up a hundred percent of my money that I earn to the state, I'm a slave. If I keep a hundred percent, I'm free. What about when I give fifty percent? Right. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a scale, right? So we have, we have seven of the 10. So we're more communist than free, but it's a spectrum, right? Now, now three, three of the 10 have to do with agriculture and food and the government's taking over control of the food. Interesting. Have you seen that uh, apropos of nothing? Have you seen that? I, th- I think it was associated with the World Economic Forum, but it's like that video where it's like people currently live in these distributed, you know, shacks and shanties and houses. We're going to take all those people, vacuum them up, vacuum them up and compress them into a single bright, shiny line in the desert. You know what I'm talking about? Uh-uh, I haven't seen it. Oh, it's this like, uh, it's a model or it's related to a model for like how we can more effectively kind of pack people into smaller spaces. But it just made me think of what you were talking about, making people dependent on governmental systems. For what we did with food, the book, what we, housing. what we did with the book is this: this is not a Bitcoin book, so kind of back to the hunter farmer kind of a thing. This this doesn't say Bitcoin on the cover. If I believe we mentioned the word Bitcoin ten times in the book, but what we do is we build a case that there's no way to have an uncapitalist society without it. Right. And so part of the thing is like back to introducing consequence and responsibility, unlike a two class system or like a, even a feudal system, we have diagrams for all this in the book. We want a society that has permeable classes. We want people to be able to rise up, but also people need to be able to fall down. And the fiat money system prohibits that. Right. It, it, it too big to fail. All these bankers did all these risky bets and they lost everyone's money, but let's just bail them out anyway. Or these airlines, they did all these wrong things with their money. They did, they spent all their money back on stock buybacks, but let's just bail them out. And so the fiat money system is what enables this. And so it's a Bitcoin book. We, we obviously talk about Bitcoin extensively, well, 10 times, but we make the case that there's just no way to have an uncommon society without it. And, and back to number five and the 10 points of communism is having a central bank. <laughs> they really told us in this country that communism be- is bad while they created a communist state for us. I mean, I, I've long believed that the, the idea that socialism is frowned upon, looked down upon in this country is laughable because we, we live in, in my opinion, a socialist country. There's too many socialist programs out there that exist to where it just, to me, it feels like there's a lack of an understanding of the definition of that word. I digress. P, I've, I've hijacked this conversation and I took it in directions I promised I told you I wouldn't. No, this is amazing. I'm enjoying it thoroughly. Now keep going. Uh, a couple, couple, couple things I would say is communism sounds like this old word. Like Q said, right? Like well, we, we were kind of taught that communism was bad. Well, only if you're old enough. I was taught communism was bad. Today, people aren't really taught that. I watched this. I was uh, rewatching these old ep- episodes of Seinfeld just because sometimes I like just like some stupid mindless comedy to kind of like turn my brain to mush so I can fall asleep. And there was like this old, old episode of Seinfeld. I think that was like from the 80s, right? Or whatever. And it was like, this guy's a communist. And they had like this whole episode about this guy being this communist. And, and I thought that was kind of funny. But communism seems like this old, old word. And to, to the point that Q made, they tell us it was bad, but yet they've slipped it in. 
and they just called it something different. And so I kind of alluded to that in the beginning where Karl Marx says, if I summarize communism in one statement, it's the abolition of private property. Klaus Schwab says, you'll own nothing and be happy. Karl Marx says that we need to take over the means of production and control that. Klaus Schwab says that we need a public-private partnership, right? And so they call them different things, but it's more alive and well than it's ever been. So I think that's important to understand. And then, you know, back to the doom porn kind of a thing. I don't, I don't like to be all doom and gloom. And so the original book to me was, was soul-sucking. You're a victim. You'll never get ahead. Your life is miserable. What's the point? We need to save you. And so we try to write the book as, as a message of hope. And so uh, while I talk about all the doom and gloom, and I can sit here and talk doom and gloom all day, I, always, I, I, I like to point it to a message of hope. And uh, while communism has been tried multiple times and it's left a trail of dead people in its wake, about approximately 25 million people died through the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia through the 30s and the 40s. Approximately another 50 million people died in the Great Leap Forward in China. So we know the consequences of what happens when this is done. But we also have a plan that was left that shows how it was defeated. And so I like to look at that side. And I've obviously alluded to that many times. And so communism really, as we know, it fell with the fall of the Berlin Wall in Germany, and then really the whole USSR collapsed in the 70s and then really into the 80s. And if you look at the way it collapsed, and there's been lots of good books written about this. Some of the, some of the writers like Vaclav Havel have written extensively. The Gulag Archipelos is a great book that, that talk about this. What happened is towards the end and into the 70s, communism has, has, had gotten so bad. It was just, it was so oppressive. People were so poor. It was such a poor system that people were basically forced to go build these parallel structures. And that's what I was talking about earlier. So they couldn't get food, you know, through the traditional system because of price controls and stuff. And so there was shortages on scarce resources like food. So they set up their own food markets outside, right? So there's all these black markets or parallel structures that were set up. And there's two things that happen when that, when that happens. So if I'm having a party at my house, and I said, hey, you're, you're, too, you're too loud. You get out of here. And uh, hey, I don't like what you're wearing. You, you leave. And I don't like you for whatever reason. Like you leave. Eventually, I kick so many people out of the house, the party, that I'm the only person left. And you guys have all started a party on your own. And I have no control over you because you're in a different party. And so what happens is as that was happening, two, two important things happened. One, as these people left the traditional systems, the state systems, the incumbent systems, and they left that to go to these new parallel markets, it, they lost more power. We talked about that capital controls. They try to force people to stay inside the system. But the more people that leave, the, the more power they lose. And then the good piece was when the inevitable collapse happened, it cushioned the blow because all those parallel structures were built. And so that is the model that was laid out before us. And that's the model that we have right now today. And so I'm super passionate about it. And we kind of talked about that. And I think about this quote from Socrates, Buckminster Fuller, Fuller did a, like a reboot on it. But Socrates said, focus all your energy, not on fighting the old, but on building the new. So I can't change the education system. I don't like it, but I'm not going to waste any energy trying to fight it. I'll just pull my kids out and I'll put them in the, a different school right? A little homeschool pod. I can't change the medical system like my sister, who's a doctor, but she exited that system. And now she's created her own medical care system, right? I can't change mainstream media, which I think is bad and corrupt and blah, 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 but I can create my own media channels. I can't change the financial system, but I can pull my money out and I can put it into Bitcoin. 
And then when we have Bitcoin, because now we're moving back in those eras, you had cash. And so like Yomi Parks, when she spoke at Bitcoin 22, she was talking about how all these people in North Korea had stockpiled all this cash for decades. And then the government came and seized it all. That's a different story. But they had cash back then. And so the cash worked really well in the black markets. But today we're moving into a digital age. Cash is on its way out. It's being outlawed. We saw yesterday the Fed now system is going to come out by 2023. It's like accelerating pretty quickly. And so Bitcoin is digital cash. Bitcoin is what underpins that, right? Because without the freedom of payments, we have no freedom. The Constitution guarantees me freedom of assembly. But if I can't pay to put gas in my car, how do I drive to the assembly? If I can't pay for a hotel room or food when I'm there, how do I go assemble? I don't. How do I, if, if the government wants me to eat the bugs and, and take away my good meat, well, how about if I pay a farmer? But if I can't pay, if I have no freedom of payments, then I can't get the food. So under Bitcoin is what enables all of that to happen, especially in today's age, in the digital age. And so that's how we do it. I talk to people all the time at conferences and whatnot, like at BitBlock Boom this weekend. And they're like, I want to get involved in this. How do I help? And I say, take your skill that you have and then go offer it outside of the existing system. Start accepting Bitcoin. Um, and then back to kind of the statement I made yesterday, it was actually Alex Fetsky that laid it out for uh, Alex Jones, a producer. It's like, think about Bitcoin not as an investment so much as a parallel payment system. Obviously, Alex Jones' entire banking system had gotten shut down, et cetera. And so that's it. That's the playbook. We do what we do. We take our skills. We build the parallel systems. We use Bitcoin as that, par that parallel structure or the payment system. And we'll survive. We'll thrive and, and we'll have a better world. From your lips to God's ears and the powers that be's ears, because apparently <laughs> they're more powerful than God these days. Mark, I want to get a sense from you, and I want to ask you like the most obnoxious question out there that I, I apologize in advance, but we see a lot of doom and gloom in the streets. It feels like the decisions of the Fed, I, I heard this take over the weekend and I was like, honestly, that's so accurate. This is a... I'm stealing David Sachs's words where he essentially said, never in my career have I had to pay attention so much to the central bank, the Fed, and interest rates more than in this moment in time. What are your thoughts on just that, what the Fed is doing, and where it's going to take us, at least to the end of this year? Yeah. So good question. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to flip that question upside down first, and then I'll go back and answer the question. So most of you guys probably know by now, obviously I'm a student of history, so I talk about these stories all the time, but gold was money for you know, all of recorded history, 5,000 years. Gold was very slow. It has all the attributes of money, but portability is not one of them. The bank gave us these paper gold certificates, right? But the problem is the bank then created way too many paper gold certificates. And in 1933, because the, well, the Fed was created in 1913, fast forward. Anyway, 1933, they said, we're going to seize all the gold, right? And they did. Now, not only did they seize the gold, they said, hey, don't worry, though. Don't worry. It's worth 20 bucks an ounce. We're going to give you your 20 bucks per ounce that you have, so you're all good, right? But then they instantly turned around and devalued it to $35 an ounce. So not only did they steal all your gold, they instantly devalued it from 20 to 35 bucks. Now, the reason why I say that is because back in 1933, if I lived on a ranch and I had 150 head of cattle and a bunch of donkeys and goats and I, whatever, had my lumber mill, whatever, I wouldn't have been affected one bit. That wouldn't even matter to me. Let them steal the gold, let them devalue it. So what? Right? So I say that first of all, so you're asking about the Fed and the stock markets and all these things. Like if I'm not in that, 
does it really matter to me? So that's the first thing I'd say. Now, back to the questions you're asking. I think you're asking, like, what do I expect from the Fed and interest rates through the end of the year? Is that what you want me to talk to? A little bit on that, but honestly, I kind of like the direction you took it of like, do, like, let's just answer that question you presented of does, if you are not investing in the stock market, does the action of the Fed actually have an impact on you? It does. So unfortunately, we're, we're in this, people probably don't realize how scary of a situation we're in and how, how tough the Fed situation is, is right now. So prices. So first of all, we're Bitcoiners. So under the Austrian definition of inflation, inflation is when the monetary supply increases. Prices going up is the result or the effect of that. All right. But today's terms, CPI, they're measuring a basket of goods. So in today's terms, we basically call inflation the price of goods going up. It's a stupid way to look at it, but it is what it is. It's stupid because there's trillions of prices and there's trillions of inputs and reasons why those prices could change. Okay. But that's what we're dealing with. So, so the, the Fed's battling this inflation. Now, prices going up, prices are affected by only two levers, supply and demand. Okay. So if we have more demand, so they printed so much money that there's more demand for the same amount of goods, the price of the goods goes up. Now, because the supply chain is breaking down, we have less goods. So we have more demand and less goods. Prices go up even more. Now you have to understand that real quickly to understand the situation the Fed's in. So the Fed and the Biden administration is focused on prices. They say we need to get inflation under control. Their goal is 2% inflation. We're at 9.1. Now we're 8.5. They're trying to break that down. Now, to get prices to come back down, there's two levers, supply and demand, right? Of course, the central banks can't print more supply. They can't produce more energy or more food. So the only thing they can affect is the demand side. And that's exactly what they're doing. They've said as much many times. So they're trying to destroy demand. So... It's called the reverse wealth effect. If they can make you feel poor, your 401k crashes, your house value crashes, you feel poor, and now you don't take that vacation. You don't go out to dinner as much. You don't buy as much. So they want to destroy demand, All right? So that's a problem because, again, let's say I'm not in the stock market, but I have a business. Well, they're destroying demand, so that might affect my business. So I need to be aware of that. So again, I told you my story in 2008, I wasn't paying attention to the financial system and it still affected my life. So I need to be aware of that. If demand gets destroyed, what does that mean for my business and how do I navigate that? Businesses are good for inflation. If prices go up, I can raise my prices on my business. So it's good for that. But if demand gets destroyed, I have no customers. That's a problem. But it's also a big problem for the government because the government has expenses they have to pay out, right? So they have entitlements they have to pay out. They have interest on the debt they have to pay out, et cetera. And tax receipts, 100% of tax receipts go to pay just the entitlements and uh, just the basic necessities of the state, not including all the extra stuff they pay. But if they crush demand, meaning they lower home prices and they lower stock prices and consumers spend less money, then tax receipts go down. 200% of the year-over-year growth in tax receipts came from cap gains and IRA distributions. So if assets don't go up anymore, there's no cap gains, and then there's no money to be spent, which means tax receipts drop. If tax receipts drop, they have to print more money, right? And then what happens when they print more money? Oh, yeah, prices go back up. So it's just real. We could spend an hour just talking about that, that situation. But the point is, is that's the situation that we're in. The Fed is trying to crush demand and people need to be aware of that. Because, again, that could affect your business. 
that will eventually lead to more money printing, which will cause prices to go back up. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. How would you defend yourself from that? I think for the average person, they shouldn't be in the stock market, right? When it comes to business, investing, or sports, or any of that, we should always have an edge. If I'm going to play you in poker, I'm going to approach the game differently. I'm going to try to see if I can read your tells. That might be my edge. For example, if I was playing basketball, maybe my edge is something different. So when we're investing or we're in a business, we should also have an edge. If you don't know what your edge is, that means you don't have one. <laughs> That's not good. But nobody has an edge in the stock market. Those are publicly traded utility or publicly traded equities. We have high frequency traders on Wall Street. They have an edge. You don't. So to navigate this properly, I think most people should not be involved in that. You don't have an edge there. I think businesses are a great way to navigate that as long as you can make sure that your business won't be adversely affected by those things. Obviously, there's some businesses and industries that are more recession, recession proof than others. And then, you know, taking that money that you earn with your business and investing it in the right places. So, of course, Bitcoin is outside that system, right? And into other assets that can put money into your pocket. So that's kind of the way that I'm looking at it. It's what I'm looking through the end of the year. If I want to kind of guess as to what I think happens through the end of the year, I'm kind of in the same consensus as, you know, Nick Batia and, and Luke Grauman. And I think uh, we probably see rates probably get paused around the election. The Fed's going to have to come off of this because of the problems, as I've already said, right? They can't tax receipts come down. They have to start printing again. They have to stop raising rates. They're going to crush demand too much. Probably a big dip. And then a big inflationary push. One last thing I'll say, and then I'll shut up and you guys can ask some questions. The other thing that I would also just encourage people to start thinking about is we have to think about things in terms of purchasing power because we don't want money. What we want is the things that money buys us. And so it's always in terms of purchasing power. And the reason why that's important to understand is because we, we measure everything in the dollar terms, but the dollar is so heavily manipulated. So we need to look in terms of what will this house get me? How many barrels of oil or how many ounces of gold will this house get me? How many bushels of wheat will it get me, et cetera, these other assets? And so it's important to understand as all these prices start fluctuating, whether they go way up an inflationary bust or a deflationary bust, either way, we need to be aware of what we can trade those assets for other assets. And so what do I mean by that? Let's just use gold, for example, or we could use Bitcoin as well. But let's just use gold. Let's say that gold drops from whatever it is, seventeen hundred an ounce today, to a thousand dollars an ounce. It's possible that 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 gold at a thousand ounce still buys me more food and energy than it does at seventeen hundred because that dollar is manipulated. So as we see this this bust, inflationary bust, and then a, de a deflationary bust, then an inflationary bust, the prices are going to go haywire. And it's important to look through and see the purchasing power, which is what the real important thing is. Well, Mark, this has been absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. I am so sad <laughs> that we have to end, but unfortunately we are at time. Yep. So how can people find you? You've mentioned your book. Do you want to do that one more time? And then also, yeah, how can people find you? How can they follow you? How can they stay abreast yep. of everything you're working on? Yes. Yeah. Thanks for letting me do that rant. Back to shameless plug, Uncommerce Manifesto, just go on Amazon. We dropped it a couple weeks ago. You can buy it there. If you go to my website, onemarkmoss.com, I have like all my social linked, my YouTube channels linked, podcast, et cetera. It's probably the easiest way. And I am probably way too active on Twitter. I probably can get more work done if I put it down. So hit me up on Twitter. Ask me a question. Say you heard me. I'd love it. Martin, thank you as always for your time, man. Hey guys, this is Q from Bitcoin Magazine Live. Bitcoin Magazine and the team that brought you the world's largest Bitcoin conference is bringing the mission of hyper-Bitcoinization global with the inaugural European gathering this fall. 
Bitcoin Amsterdam takes place October 12th through 14th at the beautiful Westergaas venue in the heart of the city. Join thousands of Bitcoiners for three days of curated Bitcoin content that is relevant to the emerging Bitcoin scene in Europe and the global movement. Confirmed speakers include Dr. Adam Back, Alex Gladstein, Greg Foss, Ray Youssef, and many, many more. This will be an immersive conference which includes hands-on engagements at our Proof of Workshop stage, as well as exclusive content for VIP whales in the deep. Bitcoin Amsterdam's exclamation point will be a massive Bitcoin party and music festival that you won't want to miss. The European installment of Sound Money Fest takes place on day three of the event, October 14th, and admission is included with GA and whale passes. Check out all the details at b.tc forward slash conference and use promo code BMLIVE for 10% off. Ticket prices increase on August 21st, so grab your tickets today for €299 for a GA ticket and €3,499 for VIP whale passes. The censorship-resistant issue of the Bitcoin Magazine print edition is available now. Grab your copy at your local Barnes & Noble store or head on over to the Bitcoin Magazine store and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off of your order today. (laughs) 